on this episode of Jeff Does Vegas. Even those great entertainers that we see coming later in the 40s, into the 50s, Sammy Davis Jr. and Nat King Cole and Johnny Mathis and Pearl Bailey, they go into the entertainment venue in that location and they entertain and then they leave the same way. They go out the back door and then they go back to the west side and they stay at boarding houses. Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is Jeff Does Vegas. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 124 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get rolling for this episode of the podcast, I want to thank my guest from the last episode, Sir Harry Cowell, the co-founder of Raiding the Rock Vault, currently running at the brand new Duomo Theater in the Rio, Las Vegas. Sir Harry and I discussed his long career in the music business, what inspired the creation of Raiding the Rock Vault, and the challenges of moving a show into a brand new venue. If you haven't listened as of yet, jump into the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out episode number 123, Vegas Rocks, Raiding the Rock Vault, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, here we go. On to the show. I've talked a lot of Las Vegas history on this podcast, and I love doing it. And based on the reaction to the various Vegas history episodes I've released, it's pretty clear that you guys love it too. This time around, I'm covering a part of Vegas history that doesn't get the attention it deserves. And if I'm being honest, it's a part of Las Vegas history that I really had no idea existed. And for someone who considers themselves a bit of a Vegas fanatic, I'm a little embarrassed by that fact. My guest for this episode of the podcast is Clay T. White. Ms. White is the director of the Oral History Research Center at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. I invited Ms. White to join me for a conversation about black history and the African-American community in Las Vegas. I did this after hearing her appearance on the podcast Spectacle Las Vegas, where she talked about segregation and integration on the Las Vegas Strip, as well as the impact of the famed Moulin Rouge, which was the city's first racially integrated hotel and casino. Ms. White shared her story of what brought her to Las Vegas and got her interested in black history. We discussed the situation in Las Vegas leading up to the founding of the Moulin Rouge and what led to the integration of the Las Vegas Strip. Please enjoy my conversation with Clay T. White. I have been in Las Vegas since 1992, but originally I'm from a small place called Ahoski, North Carolina. Ahoski is about 60 miles south of Norfolk, Virginia. So when I fly home now, I fly into Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, But along the way, I lived 22 years in Los Angeles. And then 1992 was the Rodney King riots. 
And that rebellion brought me just, uh, I left the city. It was time to go. And that it brought me to Las Vegas. Las Vegas was smaller. The cost of living wasn't as great. I was at that point in my life that I could take some time and think about the next step. And that brought me to UNLV, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And I decided that I wanted a master's degree. And then I had to decide, is it going to be women's history, Black history? What is this going to be? So I started doing some investigation and did sort of a combination American history with an emphasis in women's history and Black history. And while I was in the history department doing this, they decided it's time for Las Vegas to capture its own history through the oral history process. We had an oral history program at UNR, that's the University of Nevada, Reno, but they never had enough funding. Even though they were the state program, they never had enough funding to go outside of that Northern Nevada area. So the history department said, let's do it ourselves. And they started teaching us how to do it, sent in experts to train us, and the rest is history. <laughs> Quite literally. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so now you are the director of the Oral History Research Center at UNLV, which is very, very cool. And I would imagine being that Las Vegas is not that old of a city in in the grand scheme of things you're getting a lot of this history directly from the people who lived it you're not getting it secondhand or or third hand from descendants of those people as i say you're getting it from the people who who were there that's correct las vegas started in 1905 so when you think about that when we started this program in 2003 we could almost touch people who could remember, almost remember the beginning. And so it was just an amazing time to collect history. And it still is today because we can still talk to people who came here in the 1950s. So it's just an amazing place to conduct oral histories. Ms. White, I wanted to have you on the podcast to have a conversation about one of the lesser known facets of Las Vegas history. I think when people think of the history of the city of Las Vegas, their mind instantly goes to the mob, which makes sense. That is the more publicized side of, of Vegas history. But there's so much more to the city than that. I wanted to talk to you about black history and the African-American community in Las Vegas. There's a very interesting history there and, and, a, and a lot of really interesting information and facts about that community in the city. And, and I learned a little bit about it from your appearance on another podcast where you were talking about the Moulin Rouge and segregation and um, civil rights in the city. But I, I really wanted to get you on. I thought it was important to have you on to, to have a conversation and share this a little bit more widely with my, my audience. So let's start in the 1950s from my understanding and from the, the bits of reading that I've done African-Americans started to make the move west to Las Vegas from the southern U.S. to try to 
escape some of the the segregation and racism that they were experiencing in those parts of the country. But when they arrived in Las Vegas, they found it really wasn't much different than elsewhere in the country, was it? Well, now, if you think about the country, any place in the United States will reflect the same kind of history that you've heard me talk about in Las Vegas. If you would have someone on from Lincoln, Nebraska, from Des Moines, Iowa, wherever, you would get some of the same history because Jim Crow ruled this country for years and years and years and systemic racism is still alive and well today. So yes, the 1940s and 1950s, people are escaping from the South. And it starts, of course, back to right after World War I. Coming to Nevada is just one of the places you would think that going West might be a little different. The, the migration starts with people going to Chicago and New York and Philadelphia and those kinds of places. World War II, the migration starts toward the West. The shipyards, building all the things needed to run this country during World War II. So that's how people really came to Las Vegas because we had a big plant here called Basic Magnesium Incorporated. 1941, that factory begins to operate, building all of the necessary implements for war. Bullets, rifles, airplanes, really not building them here, but refining that magnesium ore, that manganese ore that's used to build these implements. So the federal government needs a place that's not on the West Coast, that's inland a little, but where the water supply is great and that's near the ore. And there's an ore in Gabs, Nevada. So we have trains here that can bring the ore in and we have the water from Lake Mead because we built the Hoover Dam in the 1930s. So we have everything right here. So that area that's called that basic town site that is now the city of Henderson starts at that time. The housing for that plant is in two parts, of course, because we have segregation. So we have white workers and we have black work workers at BMI, Basic Magnesium. And the black workers lives in a place called Carver Park. That's their area, their living area. Whites live in Victory Village. Well, Carver Park is designed and constructed by a Black architect. His name is Paul R. Williams. So he constructs that for the federal government. So we see Paul Williams building homes, building a place of respite, a place of rest for African-Americans escaping from the South. And the racism doesn't end when they get here. They think that they can take a breath, but they realize that they really cannot, that the housing is not finished until 1943. And there is an area of the city called the West Side. Today, we call it the historic West Side. And that's the area where African-Americans live. So they come here and they are living in shacks and tents to begin with. Now, they have federal jobs that they are, are working, being paid by the federal government. But because there are no laws 
no fair housing and there's redlining by the banks, they can't get the houses that, that the white workers are able to get. So white workers live in Victory Village, but they can also live any place in Las Vegas. And African-Americans are assigned to this small area called the West Side. It's across the tracks. And of course, that segregation wasn't just applied to housing for the African-American community, but it extended to the main part of the Las Vegas Strip. The The reading and the, the bit of research that I did into this, I, I was absolutely floored to read the way the African-American community was treated by the the big strip properties at the time. So once the Hoover Dam was completed in the 1930s, we began to get tourism. That becomes the business of Las Vegas. We have tourists coming now. And we have this gaming industry that's beginning to to be developed here. Uh, 1940s, we see the beginning of downtown with the gaming establishments, these wonderful places. And those tourists who can afford to gamble and they have that kind of money, they are coming from places like Southern California, but they're coming from Texas and Mississippi. They're oil men. And they're coming from those areas of the country. And they are not accustomed to standing beside someone in an entertainment venue, someone who's African-American, the person who cleans up, they're not accustomed to working with that person, so they don't. And the city obeys their needs. And so that's what happens. So if you go into the Sands Hotel or the El Cortez or the El Rancho and other early hotels here, African-Americans don't go into the front door along with you. They go into the back door. And even those great entertainers that we see coming later in the 40s, into the 50s, Sammy Davis Jr. and Nat King Cole and Johnny Mathis and Pearl Bailey, they go into the entertainment venue in that location and they entertain and then they leave the same way. They cannot go onto the floor to gamble or go into those wonderful restaurants. They go out the back door and then they go back to the West Side and they stay at boarding houses. African-American women make that a, a lucrative business running boarding houses. And we still have one replica left of a boarding house and it's being renovated today. It's on the National Register of Historic Places it's called the Harrison House. And there are lots of others, but that's the only one that we can identify the building as what it was. And uh, Nat King Cole stayed at that boarding house. We know that. We know Sammy Davis Jr. wrote about that boarding house in his book. Children in the community knew that Nat King Cole was going to come out eventually and smoke a cigarette. So they were right there waiting for him to talk to him, to chat with him, to show him their report cards and just <laughs> engage him in conversation. He became a part of the community. He was here that often at the Thund Thunderbird and the Sands and other places that he actually became part of the community along with Pearl Bailey 
Pearl Bailey used to go to a certain nightclub on the West Side, and they would have her chill glass ready for her when she got off the stage at whatever venue she was entertaining. And then these guys and these women would, would all then do jam sessions at some of those West Side entertainment venues. Smaller, no hotel attached, but there was gaming and then there were restaurants in the area and all of this is in walking distance. You know, Jackson Avenue is where these places were located and a few of them on D Street and E Street. So they're all within walking distance and it it becomes a community and that area becomes a vibrant business area For Black owners, there are some white owners and a few Asian owners. Majority of the barbershops, beauty shops, and those cocktail lounges I talked about, the majority of them were owned by Blacks in the population. There's stories floating around out there about the relationship between uh, white entertainers and Black entertainers in Las Vegas at this time, particularly with... Um, Sammy Davis Jr. and Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. Okay, so he was here well before Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. Okay, he was part of the Will Maston trio. So when he first came to Las Vegas, he was with his father and his uncle, part of that Will Maston trio. And they actually stayed at the Harrison House then because that's what he writes about in his book. So it was later that he became part of that group calling themselves the Rat Pack. Uh, That was much later in his career. And it is said something like Frank Sinatra, it it almost chokes me to try to say this, that Frank Sinatra integrated Las Vegas because he said something like, if Sammy can't perform here, then we're not, if Sammy can't stay here tonight, then none of us are going to perform here. It is possible that Frank Sinatra said that at some time in history, but we know that the African-American community integrated Las Vegas, not some entertainer that came here for a few weeks at a time. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that the entertainers did not help because we can look at 1952 and we can see Josephine Baker coming here to entertain This is after World War II, and she's very famous in Europe. She has helped in the resistance in France. And now she does a tour, coming back home, and she does a tour. And she demands integration every place she performs. And she's here performing at the El Rancho. And she demands in her contract that she's going to have a couple of tables that's going to be filled with her Black friends every evening. And they adhere to that. She has to force them to adhere to her contract because they don't think she's going to actually go through with it. But she gets the NAACP active in, in that pursuit of people to come in every night to sit at those tables, and that's the way they do it. So, yes, there are little incremental steps that happen toward integration and that's some of those steps after the break we discuss the historic agreement that led to the end of segregation on the las vegas strip and ms white shares the story of the rise and fall of the moulin rouge that's next on jeff does vegas (laughs) 
I want to talk about the Moulin Rouge. Okay, yes. This is a part of Las Vegas history that I was completely unfamiliar with. I mean, I'd heard the name Moulin Rouge bounced around and had seen the name Moulin Rouge in various bits of reading that I've done about Las Vegas history, but I really wasn't familiar with the historical significance of this property or exactly what it meant to the city of Las Vegas. Let's start with a bit of background on the Moulin Rouge. Who was behind the founding and the construction? So believe it or not, three white people, white men, owned and built the Moulin Rouge. Ruben, Bismo, and the other one is Schwartz. He is the 38% owner, Bismo 31%, and Ruben is 29%. Well, you add that up and you get 98%. It is possible. We have not found the evidence of this but everybody talks about it. It is possible that the other 2% was owned by Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis is a part of that operation and he is your host at the Moulin Rouge. So you go there on opening night and you are greeted with the heavyweight champion of the world. You are exposed to the first African-American line of black dancers ever in the city. And these are dancers that have have danced in New York and Los Angeles and London and Paris. And now they're together in this line of wonderful dancers. And it's like being at the Moulin Rouge in Paris. And that's what you find. Restaurants that can rival any of the restaurants on the Las Vegas Strip or downtown. It's the DeVille room where the waiters have tucks and they wear white gloves. So th- this is how you are served. The entertainment is moderated by Bob Bailey. Bob Bailey was a singer with Count Basie. And now he's at the Moulin Rouge. He is the house singer and the MC. And so, so this is where you are. And the, the, the bar area, the wallpaper is designed like the, the wallpaper at the Rouge in Paris. And the building is spectacular. It's just beautiful. The rooms are magnificent. So now African-American entertainers don't just have to stay at boarding houses anymore. Boarding houses were fine. But not like, even though it may have been segregated in places like Philadelphia and New York and and Los Angeles, there were areas of the city that had wonderful Black-owned hotels. So when they would come to Las Vegas, they felt that it was a step down for them because they just did not have the same amenities that they were accustomed to having in other places. But Las Vegas paid them more money than they earned any place else in the country. But now they have the Moulin Rouge and they have this spectacular place where they can go after leaving the strip now and they can come to this spectacular place. And I'm sure they continue to have the jam sessions uh, in some of the other smaller places, 
but now they have the Moulin Rouge. And I say they probably continued at some of those smaller places on Jackson Avenue because the Moulin Rouge only lasts that heyday period where you have Tallulah Bankhead and all of these people coming from Hollywood. You have them in your audience every night. But that heyday only lasts for about six months. And the place is closed. The city said they didn't pay all of the contractors for the work that was done on the hotel. But the Moulin Rouge did something that may have caused some other problems. They put on a show at 2.30 at night. So everybody else on the Las Vegas Strip, they have a midnight show. But now the Moulin Rouge has a show at 2.30 in the morning. So now the entertainers and the high rollers have someplace else to go in this beautiful show. They can go over and see this show and take part in the, in the finery of the Moulin Rouge. And that's what begins to happen. Some of the showgirls in the back of the house, in some of those casinos, there are signs back there that say, if you're caught at the Moulin Rouge, you will lose your job. So we know that they have been threatened not to go across the tracks to the Moulin Rouge. And the Moulin Rouge is in the Black community. It's just, it's, it's like a half a block where we feel that the, the, the Black community actually starts. So they're going across the tracks to a Black hotel, an integrated facility, and they're leaving the Las Vegas Strip. So the place soon closes. But that era of that kind of entertainment, that level, it has been established now. And at the same time, the Moulin Rouge is being constructed. The African-American community gets the first housing complexes. Same person who did the houses for the BMI in 1940s, he comes back and designs Berkeley Square that is now on the National Register of Historic Places. It is a development of about 148 houses that Black middle-class people can afford, and they begin to move in. And then there is Highland Square with the same housing design. And then there's Cadillac Arms. So that model that Paul Williams designed, we see it spread out through the Black community, providing space for people who've migrated here, providing home in a way that Paul Williams, the architect, believes that these people deserve the level of housing that they, they deserve. Going back to the 2.30 a.m. shows at Moulin Rouge, I I did a little bit of reading. I did a lot of reading in preparation <laughs> for this conversation because I, yeah. I, I was looking forward to it and I did a lot of digging. And seeing some of the information and the stories coming out of those 2.30 a.m. shows, yeah. I can understand how the other casino owners would be so upset with those 2.30 a.m. shows because, as you said, the other shows on the Strip would wrap up, finish, they'd be done by 1.30. Yeah. Everyone would head to the Moulin Rouge, they'd party, they'd drink, they'd enjoy the yeah. shows, and the caliber of entertainment that they were getting yeah. was big showroom entertainers. That's correct. 
you have the platters and the platters are big at this time. They're in their heyday as well. And they're performing there. Stump and Stumpy and all kinds of other entertainers. Dinah Washington. These are all entertainers that you'll see at the Moulin Rouge. And now you can look around the audience and you can see all of these other entertainers right there in the audience that you're rubbing elbows with. Absolutely incredible. Just just amazing. Um, Ms. White, you mentioned about the the short lifespan of the Moulin Rouge and the heyday of of the Moulin Rouge. And you alluded to the fact that it, it was implied that there were bills unpaid and and that was what led to the downfall. But it seems like there's there's more to the story than just a, a simple case of money being owed to somebody. And, and another fact that, that we have to remain conscious of and aware of is that this, there is a downturn in the economy here in, in this area. Um, so when, when there is a downturn in the economy, the casino industry really gets hit hard. So there is the Dunes Hotel, the Royal Nevada, and the Riviera also have financial problems at the same time as the Moulin Rouge. The only saving grace for the other three is that other casinos prop them up and allow them to continue to operate. No one does that for the Moulin Rouge. So that is the difference as well. So we do see a difference in the way that this economic downturn is handled. And so again, the the lifespan of the Moulin Rouge open to close was was only about six months. Yeah, like five and a half to six months. That was it. And the fact that it it was open for such a short time and to this day is still being talked about and it really goes to show the level of impact that the Moulin Rouge made on on the community. That's correct. And in 1977, it reopens. A man named Leo Fry reopens it, and he runs it for about 20 years. Now, Leo Fry, in the beginning, is a disgusting human being. Knowing the history of the Moulin Rouge, he begins to charge Black customers more for a drink than white customers. So, And you can read about those stories as well. So he is like an outcast. He's a white man, but he's like an outcast in the black community. He does later on begin to allow black social organizations to use the facility for social events because it's wonderful for that. Mm -hmm. And he does begin to do that. So over time, he begins to change somewhat. And just to clarify, the property does not exist today, correct? property is no longer there. It's a huge vacant lot, but the sign is still here. We have a museum here called the Neon Museum, and that sign is one of the treasured signs in that museum. So you can go over there, especially if you would go over in the evening when it's dark. They light the sign just like it was lit in 1955, so you get to see that. And they tell stories about the sign, the the woman who created the sign, Betty Willis. And they talk about the Moulin Rouge in the heyday. 
through the course of the reading that I did in, in preparation for our conversation, I read about something called the Moulin Rouge Agreement. And my understanding was that this was a, a meeting of various uh, people of the community that was held at the Moulin Rouge. Can you fill in the details and, and for people who maybe are not familiar with the Moulin Rouge Agreement, um, can, you, can you tell us exactly what the Moulin Rouge Agreement was? Yes. So in 1960, the NAACP has always been active in Las Vegas. That activity starts when it's founded in 1928. So in 1960, the NAACP Las Vegas branch has as its president, our first black dentist. His name is James B. McMillan. James McMillan receives a letter from the national office, the headquarters of the NAACP in New York, and every president around the country receives such a letter. And it tries to get the branches to begin to up-level the, 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 the fight for the integration of public accommodations. So Dr. McMillan decides that he is going to see what he can do. So he writes a letter to the mayor of the city. And he tells the mayor of the city that if public accommodations on the Strip and downtown are not integrated in this two-week period, by March 25th, 26th, that area, that we, the Black community, will protest on the Las Vegas Strip on a Saturday evening. We'll close down the Las Vegas Strip and so the city begins to negotiate, sincerely begins to negotiate. They don't want that. They don't want that national press that they would get. So they begin to negotiate. And behind the scenes during that two-week period, Dr. McMillan wrote a book called Fighting Back. And in that book, he talks about this period. During that period, the negotiations go back and forth between the owners of the hotel, the city government, and the Black community. And that Saturday morning, there is a meeting, and the meeting is held at the Moulin Rouge. Everybody is part of the meeting. The Black community leaders, the governor of the state, the mayor of the city, the police chief, Hank Greenspun, who runs the uh, Sun newspaper. So they're all there sitting around the table. There's one woman, Lubertha Johnson, one of the head people negotiating this agreement. No one takes notes, unfortunately. So the Moulin Rouge agreement is completely verbal. It is such a disservice because people come into the library here at UNLV right now, and they want to see the Moulin Rouge agreement. So not, that, not even so much as a note on a cocktail napkin. <laughs> no, we don't have any notes. So, uh, but the agreement is hammered out. And that evening, the NAACP tests that agreement to make sure that it's going to hold. So the NAACP sends out Black couples, a trio of Black people to the various hotel casinos. 
downtown and on the Las Vegas Strip, just to make sure that they can gamble, that they can eat in the restaurants, that they can go to a show. And the agreement is tested and it holds true, except for maybe two places. And those two places within the coming weeks, they also fall in line. So yes, that, that's what happens at the Moulin Rouge. So when, we, when the Moulin Rouge becomes part of the National Register of Historic Places, not only is it the first integrated hotel casino that can rival any of those in the rest of the city, but that this agreement was also hammered out there. So it is just, it meets all the criteria for the National Register. Again, you know, I find it just absolutely amazing that a place that occupied such a a small period in the timeline of Las Vegas managed to make such a massive impact on the history of the city. It just it, it just absolutely blows me away. Yes. If you just look at that heyday period, yes, it is just amazing what the community still feel about that location. And today it's just a vacant lot, but people still see it as that first integrated hotel casino. And it is still holds a a special place in the minds, the heart, the soul of the community. I feel like we could go down the rabbit hole on this topic and, and talk about this for hours on end. It's just, it's an absolutely fascinating story. And I just feel like there is just, there's so much history there. And I feel like on a, an upcoming trip to Vegas, I need to pay you a visit and sit down and have a coffee or a a cup of tea and and just, um, and just have a chat. We can definitely do that. I can drive you through the neighborhood. I can show you where it's located and the historic sign that's there and uh, talk to the people at the Neon Museum so that you can get a tour of that as well. I would absolutely love that. Um, If people want to learn more about this particular part of Las Vegas history and the Moulin Rouge and the Moulin Rouge Agreement and African-American history and the African-American community in Las Vegas, um, what are some resources that are available for for people to, to check out? So here at the university, there is a website that you can go to. It's called Documenting the African-American Experience in Las Vegas. So if you type that into Google, it will pull up that website. But there are a couple of books that I always recommend. There is a book about the Moulin Rouge called The Moulin Rouge and Black Rights in Las Vegas. It was written by Ernest Bracey. Uh, It is a very well-researched book, and it takes you into just not Leo Fry owning the Moulin Rouge, but what happens in 1977 when Leo Fry passes it on on to a next person. So you get to read all about the Moulin Rouge. And then in the 1970s, we had part of our civil rights movement. We had... um, The welfare rights movement, it was also a national movement, uh, but that here in Las Vegas just turned into a magnificent 
movement of women and children agitating for more rights. And the lady who operates that is Ruby Duncan. And there is a book written about it. It's called Storming Caesar's Palace. It's written by Annalise Orlick. And Annalise's book now has a documentary that has been made from it. So there are just all kinds of materials and sources that are available. I will be sure to share links to those resources in the show notes on my website so people can access them easily. Please. And Ms. White, I just want to say thank you for taking time to jump on the podcast and have this conversation with me. Uh, It's been an honor chatting with you and I really, really do appreciate your time and, and I appreciate these stories so much. So thank you. Well, I thank you so much and I appreciate that you wanted to talk to me. So thank you. Once again, if you want to learn more about the Moulin Rouge, the Moulin Rouge Agreement, and Black History in Las Vegas, be sure to check out Documenting the African American Experience in Las Vegas, a project of the UNLV University Libraries. I've posted the link to the site, along with the books Ms. White mentioned in our conversation, in the show notes at jeffdoesvegas.com. that wraps up another episode of Jeff Does Vegas. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. Or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been Jeff Does Vegas, a Walker New Media production. Walker New Media.